All right, y'all, for our next topic, this is a Dan classic. This is the one I prepped. Uh, just for a little insight for our audience, if you followed any of my solo content over the years, your market scale, you'll know that I really enjoy intersections of political structures and the business world and sort of where they clash, where they collaborate, uh, and how that affects both worlds. So naturally, I wanted to do something in that spirit for my first segment here on Hash It Out, and that would be uh, looking at a blog post from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. I'll go ahead and lay out the context. There's a lot to break down here, so bear with me, but we also have a guest here that's going to be giving us more insights. His name is Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. He's co-founder and CFO, excuse me, CSO of Ledin.io. We'll introduce him more formally here in a little bit, but stay tuned for our discussion as well as his insights. So, the International Monetary Fund came out with a pretty bold claim in July. They said that countries that are looking to take advantage of cryptocurrencies should not, X, big red X, should not make them legal tender. Uh, this came in the context of a blog post titled, Crypto Assets as National Currency? A Step Too Far. This was written by the director of IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department, as well as their uh, director of Legal Department. This reporting came out of Bitcoin.com, if you want to read the full report. In summary, they said, quote, as national currency, crypto assets, including Bitcoin, come with substantial risks to macro financial stability, financial integrity, consumer protection and the environment, end quote. More specifically, some of the challenges they think make this move a bad one on its face included home and businesses would waste time trying to figure out which kind of money to hold. They said the environmental impact of mass crypto mining as producing fungible tokens takes a process of giving them value by mining them on networks of servers, that that would just be too counterintuitive to adopting it in mass. Uh, they said um, adopting it as legal tender would have more exposure to fraud to a country's sort of, um, I guess, network infrastructure. And then they also said that monetary policy would lose its bite and that central banks would uh, find difficulty setting interest rates on foreign currencies. So we'll take a quick pause there. Any thoughts from y'all just off the dome on that context? Well, I mean, it seems like they have quite a bit of eggs in the basket of the current currency already. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot to shake up on how, you know, we trade and maybe there are certain aspects of, of uh, what we purchase or what our economy kind of lays on that, that, uh, we would want to keep funneled under a certain type of currency. Um, Maybe something with more history or more established. Potentially, I mean, that's yeah, fair. yeah. Okay. That being said, um, you know, if I decide that I want to give you my coffee cup for a bag of nuts, that's, you know, essentially <laughs> <laughs> my prerogative. So, Barter system, you know, yeah, baby. We're so, bringing it back. So it is what, yeah. Um, I'm I'm obviously a pro crypto guy, but uh, I, 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 I see... I see some of the the points here, specifically around, um, you know, how we're going to be, like you said, be able to leverage, um, you know, interest rates. How we're going to be able to leverage um, certain aspects of of credit, I think, as well. Uh, sure, that could definitely have, you know, a big impact on some of those legacy systems. Yeah. Well, some more important context here, in my opinion, is that this blog post from the IMF comes off some recent news of both El Salvador and Venezuela adopting crypto in scaled ways. So, let's start with El Salvador. El Salvador, which is a U.S. dollarized 
dollarized economy. It's been a U.S. dollarized economy since 2001. They're the only country to have officially made Bitcoin legal tender in June of 2021. So when the IMF says, hey, countries don't adopt uh, cryptocurrencies as legal tender, really the only country so far that has done that is El Salvador. The proposed goal from El Salvador was to use tenderized Bitcoin... <laughs> <laughs> nice, delicious, tenderized Bitcoin <laughs> to help settle the country's outstanding debts, as well as to uh, help with spot transactions. That includes tax contributions. They said the U.S. dollar would still be used for accounting, but that businesses and individuals would not be able to refuse Bitcoin payments, with the exceptions of those who evidently uh, do not have the means to access Bitcoin. And evidently is just their language saying, if you literally don't have the internet connection to use mm -hmm. Bitcoin, then yeah, you don't have to use Bitcoin. And that's important because El Salvador is one of the countries, I think, with the lowest um, internet infrastructure, like the lowest amount of mm -hmm. usable internet across the country. Now, turning to Venezuela, Venezuela, in an attempt to reverse course for its economy after experiencing years of uh, massive hyperinflation, it adopted a state-backed cryptocurrency in 2020. It's called the Petro, and it's tied to its sovereign Bolivar currency. And what's pretty unique here is that it actually decided to peg the value of the Petro to the costs of a uh, barrel of oil, which makes it more stable than traditional crypto, but also removes the traditional dynamic of a decent centralized market of investors mm -hmm. affecting crypto's value. So that's pretty essential information there, in my opinion. Now, let's intersect a little bit more about the IMF, right? What does the IMF even do in a global economy? Well, it's an international organization with 190 member countries, which work together with the stated goal of trying to stabilize the global economy. And each country pays into the fund based on its size. Then, with that money and with that network of countries, what they do is they track economic and financial events to monitor countries' economic performance, as well identify potential risks to their economy. Uh, they also uh, offer advice to members on how to improve their economies. But one of the most impactful actions it can take is that the IMF can issue short-term loans to countries seeking financial assistance. And these are mainly funded by quota subscriptions. So uh, countries like the United States or Canada or El Salvador, they pay into the fund based on their size and economy. And then usually the smaller countries, struggling countries, I'll uh, hearken it back to Greece uh, during the early 2000s uh, when they were seeking financial assistance, they came to the IMF for loans, right? Okay, so here are some relevant critiques that I've followed of the IMF that I think are important here for context before we get into our conversation with our guest. So even though bigger countries have to pay in more into the fund, because of that, they in turn get a little more influence by having a majority stake of the funds. Mm -hmm. Small countries, in essence, get loans funded by some of the world's largest economies, for better or for worse, as the economic influence of these countries shines through in loan conditions. This is big. The IMF often applies very strict conditions to it, uh, its loans Excuse me, that focus a lot on austerity economic policies, which, in essence, is just the defunding of government programs. So, Loan conditions include things like you have to lower your government borrowing, you have to cut corporate taxes, uh, you have to open up your economy to more foreign investments if you want to take this money from us. Mm -hmm. And most recently, there was a study by Oxfam, which is a group of 20 independent charity organizations. Their goal is to uh, alleviate global poverty through different research and, and um, investments. They released a study on the IMF's loans during COVID-19, right, during the pandemic. And what Oxfam found was that 84% 
of the IMF's COVID-19 loans push for or require, in some cases just straight up require, uh, that these countries seek financial relief through these loans, but that as they do so, also have to apply some austerity measures. And one of the countries that this applied to was El Salvador. Now, these measures include deep cuts to public health care systems and pensions, wage freezes, cuts to public sector, such as doctors, nurses, and teachers, cuts to unemployment benefits, right? So you see a bit of a trend here. And what's ironic is that research from the IMF itself connects the dots between things like austerity measures and the effects on worsening poverty and inequality, but it still makes it part of its loan conditions, which is just, it feels like an endless loop cycle here. And a reminder that El Salvador, again, took on crypto in part to hopefully help the country pay off some of its debts more easily. But also, according to their president, to entice foreign entrepreneurs with residency for Bitcoin offers and to build a a friendly climate for fintech entrepreneurs, excuse me, to attract capital to the economy. So we've got an interesting take here. IMF says don't adopt legal tender. El Salvador is one of the only countries that has adopted legal tender, if not really the only country that has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. El Salvador also has taken out a massive loan from the IMF to make it through the pandemic. Also, as conditions of these loans, they have to cut a ton of government programs and they have to uh, basically play by the IMF's rules. So it just seems like there's a lot of moving pieces here that, at least in my head, feel like maybe there are some intersections. But that's the point of this show and the point of this conversation is to really debate that out. Are there some intersections here uh, or am I pulling at straws, right? So how does this contact intersect again with the IMF's crypto warning blog and with countries like El Salvador and Venezuela approaching crypto at scale? So let's get some other thoughts. I'm going to bring in our guests and then I'd love some thoughts from my co-hosts here as well. Uh, So our guest today is Mr. Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. He's co-founder and CSO of Ledin.io which is a digital platform that gives cryptocurrency holders access to Bitcoin-backed loans and savings accounts that earn interest. What's also interesting about Ledin is that Ledin has a major presence in Latin America, where they've seen the most demand for their services. As much as actually 60% of their business is currently in that region, even though they do operate in 105 countries worldwide. So, Mauricio, thank you so much for joining us and giving us some context here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Real pleasure sourcing your thoughts again. So let's just start bold here. Uh, I want to open it up and just ask, do you agree with the IMF's assessment here that countries should not be adopting crypto as legal tender? Why or why not? I I, I disagree with the, the overall message. I think the message should be countries should be careful when instituting a, a, a digital asset or, or, or a crypto asset like Bitcoin as legal tender. There are things that need to be thought through, uh, thought through in terms of implementation and how this is going to impact the actual citizens of El Salvador. And I think one of the things that you know, it's funny. Like a lot of the the things that this this blog points out, it's you know the inability to set interest rates. Well, guess what? El Salvador is a dollarized economy. They can't set interest rates. <laughs> that doesn't affect them. Um, and the second one is the energy usage on Bitcoin. There's abundant data that shows that most of Bitcoin's production is done through renewable energy, uh, and so that that's also debunked. Um, there is this idea of this for- forcefulness of accepting Bitcoin. If you li- if you read through the legislation, it's all optional. Most people have the option to convert right into dollars. Now, the implementation of that might get tricky because you have to make sure, to your point, that everyone has broad access to the technology to do that. 
But the intent is to allow people to convert. The, the intent is not to force feed Bitcoin down people's, you know, into people's wallets. And so, and then as far as this, you know, heightened potential of fraud, well, you know, perhaps a lot of people haven't grown up in a, you know, in a, in an economy where all you really have is cash dollars. And if I may, cash dollars are just as prone to fraud as any other sort of, uh, uh, bearer currency where there's really very little recourse by way of consumer protection is once you transact, right? Once you transact with cash and you're in an economy like Venezuela or El Salvador, you have very little consumer protections. Uh, it's no, it's not that different than Bitcoin. Uh, and I would argue that Bitcoin gives people the option to transfer that asset and access financial services that aren't locally available, like the ones we offer. Uh, so, so I'll pause there because I think I, I, I tackled a few of the points, but, but I want to, I don't want to, I talk a lot. So no, no, that's 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 great context there. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it was clear too, like we were mentioning earlier, that it on the micro level, uh, it, there there wouldn't be as big of a difference. And I think that was one of the things you were pointing out. And um, it's it's kind of strange that they kind of look at this macro view of the economy and say, well, this is going to get messed up because of the the little micro instances of it. So. Um, on the business side, though, how, how do you see businesses that are looking to make investments in crypto? Um, how should they strategize around both potential uh, safety or environmental concerns, as well as weighing that against the potential benefits of utilizing crypto? Yeah, so I think, you know, companies oftentimes go, and if you look at traditional industries, if you look at traditional finance, they go by what the rule set says that you must do. The, the regulators over time create these frameworks that in their view, protect consumers. So, you know, the ability to charge back, the ability to cancel a credit card, uh, the requirements that banks have to go through to, to offer credit to somebody, uh, to, to monitor them properly, to make sure that you're not financing terrorism, uh, to make sure that you're not assisting somebody to do money laundering. So like there's, there's a set of rules that governments create and perfect over time with the intention of supporting consumers and protecting consumers. Many times this, these, these efforts are, you know, in a way kind of have uh, unintended consequences, make services more difficult to use, but by and large companies will basically have to go in. And if, if you, if you think of the government or the regulator as the protector of those local consumers, then you have to basically play by their rule set. I think one of the, 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 you know, one of the uh, uh, events that our industry has to kind of navigate through is the fact that, you know, as a new industry, there, there, it, it, there a regulatory framework most oftentimes does not exist. So you have to essentially go by what what it is that or what framework resembles closest the product you're trying to offer. Try to abide by that framework and and nurture the regulators locally to help you create. A framework so you can offer these services so right now it still feels a little bit like you don't know where the goalposts are or, or what is the right way of offering these services but given the efforts that are being done in the united states countries like canada uh, even in parts of europe where you're giving out bank charters to some crypto companies you're basically creating a framework on how companies need to monitor transaction how they how to need to kyc and properly know their clients as this matures it becomes another monetary instrument. It's it's not that different. It, it's just open and and permissionless. So Maurizio, uh, in the context of the IMF's history of meddling in the economies of the global south, I could see this being motivated by trying to maintain influence in a region breaking away from Western flat cur currencies, right? And so, would you agree with me? Disagree, or would you even make a connection there? 
Um, I, I would agree to some extent. I think the, the IMF, uh, to the point that Dan was making earlier about the, the covenants of these loans, right? Like, uh, and mind you, like, it, it, they don't come out of thin air, right? Like, a lot of times, and I give you the case of Venezuela, like, if, if Venezuela didn't have the issue of the IMF because oil rallied to, to infinity when, when Chavez was doing, you know, the worst possible things for the, for the country. So we, we never actually needed to go to IMF, but Maduro did. So as soon as Chavez ran out of money, Maduro basically went back to the IMF and said, I need some money. Well, the IMF naturally goes in and says, well, what did you do with trillions of dollars in revenue and your people are all starving still? And so he's saying, well, no, I'm doing my best. And the IMF is trying to, it's going to try to project their view on how to develop that economy, saying there's too much corruption on your government spending. There's way too much corruption on these hospitals that you're building that aren't curing anybody. Where is all this food going that you're importing supposedly and it's not making it to the bellies of your people? So like the IMF, a lot of times they have to deal with a lot of corruption and 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 i understand you know i i don't want to be perceived as like a pro imf person or a pro like both people have sides or have in a way reasons for enacting the things that they are enacting a lot of times you try to blanket a country with with you know and and you and perhaps you don't have the full picture and you think, oh my God, the country's doing all the things right. The country's doing all the things right. But it's really, their job is very difficult. <laughs> this is the other thing. It's like, don't, don't for a second think that the job that IMF has is difficult. It's just like writing a check to a country that has a bad track record of management and then having to try to fix it or help them fix it. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy. It, that, that's engaging there, Mauricio. Thank you so much for that insight. And, you know, I think as we continue to see more countries think about adopting cryptocurrency, and if it's any indication, it seems like the countries that are most eager to adopt it are the ones that are trying to uh, develop more of an independent hold over their own economy and also maybe try to play uh, a little bigger, right? Throw some of their political weight in more effective ways in a global economic system. Uh, I, I think we may see more Latin America countries, countries in, um, you know, Eastern Europe, countries in uh, Africa, for example, trying to adopt cryptocurrency as an option to diversify their economic portfolio and hopefully encourage maybe some economic growth as well. So I'm curious how this dynamic between the IMF and cryptocurrencies and some of the countries that we see trending towards adopting crypto as legal tender, how that continues to play out. But till then, thank you so much for your insights, Mauricio. This has been really helpful. Again, we've been chatting with Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, co-founder and CSO of Ledin.io. Uh, Mauricio, if folks want to find out more about some of the work Ledin is doing, how can they get in touch? Yeah, you can check us out at Ledin.io. And uh, on social media, we're at, at HODL with Ledin, H-O-D-L with Ledin, L-E-D-N. And uh, my personal uh, Twitter handle is at Cryptonomista, so Cryptonomist with an A at the end. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty active in those. Me gusta. Eres el gran criptonomista. <laughs> I love it. Intentamos. Yay. We're going to have to do this show in Spanish soon, too. Mauricio, thank you so much for your time, man. Gracias a ti.